Chapter 4 Material Conditions The future of the human race, of course, must depend on the nature of the inorganic world in which it lives, so that it is well to begin by reviewing this. In the first place, all astronomical and geological evidence indicates that the climate of the Earth has been roughly constant for more than a thousand million years, and there is every reason to think it will continue so for many million years to come. There is always, of course, the chance that there may be a dark star moving through space towards the solar system so as to collide with it. The collision need not be very severe to end the history of the human race. For a perturbation of the Earth's orbit, which might, from the astronomical point of view, be counted as quite small, would be sufficient to change the climate enough to destroy all life. We obviously cannot know whether there is a dark star approaching us, because it would be invisible until it was quite near. But we can say that it is extremely improbable. First, if there were many such stars, one of them would probably already have hit the solar system during the era of 2,000 million years for which the Earth has existed. Secondly, in the intensive study of the heavens by astronomers, collisions would have been observed between other stars, and though new stars, novae, are found rather frequently, their character does not suggest that they were caused by collisions of this kind. There is also another class of new stars, the supernovae. Only rather recently recognized, the last one that occurred in the galaxy was Tycho's star, which happened in 1572. For some time it was so bright as to be visible in daylight. It is still very doubtful what makes a supernova. It may be a stage in the life of every star, but their rarity makes this unlikely, and as the sun is by all standards a very normal, astrophysically uninteresting star, we can be fairly sure that it will not blow up in this way. The general conclusion of the astronomical evidence is that it is very unlikely indeed that there should be a catastrophic end to the Earth in a million years, or any substantial change in its condition. Though the Earth's climate has been roughly constant for so long, there have been minor fluctuations in it. Thus, in England, we are only now emerging from an ice age. This is the last of four recent periods of glaciation in the Northern Hemisphere, and there were three intermissions between these periods when the climate was even warmer than it is now for quite a long time. 
We cannot therefore be sure that there are no further ice ages coming to us. All that can be said is that though there have undoubtedly been other ice ages in the more distant past, they are, geologically speaking, rather rare events. Also, theorists claim to have given an explanation on astronomical grounds for the recent four ages, but then, if there had been five, might they not have discovered a different but equally cogent reason for there having been five? So we cannot be quite sure that there may not be more of them to come within a few tens of thousands of years. However, these things are trivial, for as first Scandinavia, then Scotland, and then England became uninhabitable, so the climate further south would improve. Rain would fall in the Sahara, agriculture would flourish there, and a general shift of population southwards would leave things much as they are. In this connection, the direct influence that civilized man has had on geography may be noted. Less than 10,000 years ago, England was connected with Europe over what is now the North Sea. This region was gradually drowned and, but for the direct action of man, most of Holland and the English Fen country would by now also have been drowned and indistinguishable from the North Sea. But these are comparatively minor matters, for the evidence of the past shows that the sea level has altered up and down quite considerably on account of the varying amount of ice locked up at the poles. And it is evident that as trivial a change as 50 feet in the level of the sea would entirely defeat man's efforts to preserve the low-lying regions, or conversely, with a rather large change in the other direction, would make it impossible to preserve Britain as an island. Man's direct influence on geography is really quite negligible. On the other hand, his indirect influence on geography has been more considerable since he has made very perceptible changes in climate by the felling of forests. The felling tends to remove the spongy cover of the ground, which acts as a reservoir for water, and it leads to a consequent erosion of his fields. All this is now very much on the public conscience and some remedies are being found, so I shall not go into it. It does, however, illustrate how the short-term increase in the area under cultivation may be very detrimental to agriculture in the long run. It is more interesting to inquire whether man may hope to gain any direct control over climate. In the first place, it can safely be said that it is quite impossible that he should directly cool the tropics 
and simultaneously warm the northerly regions. For it must always be true that the average temperature will be higher in the lower latitudes. If there were to be another ice age which would cool the tropics, this could only be at the expense of still further chilling the poles. But there are exceptions to this general principle which are brought about by the circulation of the ocean. The Gulf Stream has given northwestern Europe a climate roughly equivalent to that found in other parts of the world from 10 to 15 degrees further south. And conversely, the Humboldt current of cold water off the west coast of South America has made northern Chile and southern Peru much more habitable than other parts of the tropics. Currents on this vast scale are of course uncontrollable, but there are other cases where control, though it may be impossible, is not unimaginably impossible. For example, the Bering Strait is only 50 miles wide and not very deep, and great currents flow through it to and from the Arctic Sea. If it were blocked, these currents would cease, and it may be that the climate of Northwest America and Northeast Asia would be considerably changed, though I have no idea whether it would be for the better or for the worse. If it could be confidently calculated that it would be very much for the better, so that an area of the size of a small continent was made habitable through the blocking, it might become worthwhile considering the devotion of quite a fraction of the whole world's resources to the stupendous task. On an altogether smaller scale, there is the question of rainmaking. As is well known, it has recently been found that when there are heavy clouds which are nearly raining, they may be made to rain with the help of solid carbon dioxide powder. The cloud was very near the point of instability and the small stimulus was enough to topple it over. The most obvious use that could be made of the process is not actually to make rain, but rather to choose the place where it shall fall. Thus, unwanted rain might be made to fall in the sea, or it might be possible for a district needing rain to get it out of clouds, which would otherwise have only let their rain fall later in another region. Political complications seem very possible if this should be done. This rainmaking depends on the air conditions being on the verge of instability, for then practically no energy is needed to make the clouds rain. It is quite different in ordinary conditions of weather, for then it would call for an enormous expenditure of energy to change the weather whether to make it rain or to stop it from raining. At the present time, we do not 
know at all how we should go about the business, even if we did have the energy available. But in spite of this ignorance, we can still confidently say from the general principle of energy that it would not be worthwhile trying. What would be the use of filling a large water reservoir by means of rain if it took more than all the hydroelectric power derived from that reservoir to make the rain? A rainy season in the center of the Sahara, which would be good for agriculture, might, for all we know, be produced by the use of a million tons of coal, but it would certainly call for far less to irrigate the desert by distilling water at the shores of the Mediterranean and carrying it there by road or through a pipe. In the light of these considerations, it does not seem likely that man can ever do a great deal about directly altering his climates. A thing that will assume enormous importance quite soon is the exhaustion of our fuel resources. Coal and oil have been accumulating in the earth for over 500 million years and at the present rates of demand for mechanical power. The estimates are that oil will be all gone in about a century and coal probably in a good deal less than 500 years. For the present purpose, it does not matter if these are underestimates. They could be doubled or trebled and still not affect the argument. Mechanical power comes from our reserves of energy and we are squandering our energy capital quite recklessly. It will very soon be all gone and in the long run we shall have to live from year to year on our earnings. All the energy from coal and oil came from the conversion of the energy of sunlight into the chemical energy contained in plants. This conversion is not very efficient and left to itself the vegetable kingdom certainly will not year by year produce even remotely enough energy to satisfy our present scale of demand. Water power is the only really big present source of energy that can be counted as income and not capital. It derives its energy from sunlight too, through the evaporation of water in the ocean and its precipitation as rain on the mountaintops. Though water power is important, it contributes a very small fraction to the present demands of the world, and estimates do not suggest that it could ever expand so as to supply the whole of the demands. During the wrong, long run of a million years, a great deal more energy will be needed. It is worth giving consideration in a little detail to the shortage of energy, both 
because of its tremendous importance to human life and because it is possible to speak about it with some confidence. There are going to be many shortages of all sorts of things in the future. For example, metal mines will be exhausted, and many of the metals we now use will run short someday, some of them in the very near future. But it can reasonably be expected that fairly good substitutes will be found for them. But energy is different. There is no substitute for energy and no way of creating it. It is no use adopting the macabre attitude that something will turn up, an attitude which may be admissible over the shortages of metals, but not for energy, because for that, nothing can turn up. The utmost that can be done is to discover the key to unlock some known but at present unavailable source of energy. This is true even of what many will regard as a newly discovered source, atomic energy, for the existence of this energy has been long known, and the novelty is that the key has only recently been found. In the light of these considerations, I shall devote a little space to considering what the what are the future prospects of energy for the use of humanity and from what sources it may be derived. Atomic energy has been much discussed in recent years as a source of power which may ultimately replace coal. It is certainly too early to estimate this with confidence, but the prospects are really not very bright. The only method of getting atomic power, which is at present in sight, is from uranium. Now uranium is a fairly common element, commoner than silver, but not as common as lead. But present estimates suggest that the total energy that could be derived from the Earth's uranium is very roughly as much as has come and will come from coal. It is unlikely to be ten times as much, and it is certainly not a thousand times as much, so it would not help in the long ages to come. Moreover, there are very few mines where it is strongly concentrated, and for the rest it would be a costly and destructive business to work over vast bodies of poor ore in order to win relatively tiny quantities of uranium. The matter is made only a little better by the existence of the rather commoner element thorium, which has not yet been tamed into giving up atomic energy, though this will probably happen someday. The production of energy from uranium or thorium, as far as we can judge, will, have always, ha will always have to be done in piles, which have to be very large units if they are to work at all, so that the distribution of the power to the users 
is itself quite a problem. Furthermore, there are really formidable secondary difficulties associated with making energy from uranium. There is the familiar political danger that it is impossible to get the power without at the same time making large amounts of explosive material suitable for atom bombs. Then also there are made large quantities of intensely radioactive fission products, the cinders of the furnace, and even at the present time, when developments are still almost rudimentary, the disposal of these cinders is formidable is a formidable problem. On the whole, when the prospects of power from uranium are not very good, it may be a useful palliative in the energy shortage, but it almost certainly will not provide a long-term solution. It is well known that there may be a possibility of making atomic explosives from hydrogen, and since this is a source of energy, it might someday be made into a fuel to yield power. It is the isotope, heavy hydrogen, that would be used, and though its proportion in hydrogen or in water is very small, still there are, broadly speaking, unlimited stocks of it. In practice, it takes a good deal of energy to separate it out from the ordinary hydrogen, but the amount is trivial compared to the energy it would yield after the separation. There seems little doubt that the heavy hydrogen will someday be made to explode with the help of a suitable detonator, but this would be useless as a source of power. For that purpose, it is necessary that it should be made to burn slowly, and this may be an insoluble problem. If, however, it could be done, it might yield a permanent solution to the fuel problem. To complete the picture of atomic energy, there is ordinary hydrogen, which potentially contains most energy of all. It is ordinary hydrogen atoms that yield the energy which keeps the sun and stars hot. This they do through a series of rather complicated reactions at enormous temperatures which gradually unite them into helium through the agency of atoms such as carbon and nitrogen. As far as we can judge, this energy is permanently locked up in the case of the hydrogen on Earth, and perhaps it is a good thing, for if it were not so, there would be quite a probability someday of an explosion which would wreck the whole Earth and indeed the solar system. The burning of heavy hydrogen must always be controllable because it has to be preceded by the laborious separation of it from ordinary hydrogen. But if it were possible easily to burn ordinary hydrogen, sooner or later 
some madman, or perhaps a disappointed would-be world dictator would set fire to the sea in such an uncontrollable way that the wave of burning would consume all the hydrogen on the earth. A rough calculation shows that the energy would be enough to make the earth shine for more than 10 years as brightly as the sun does now. It would make the solar system into a very respectable new star. On the whole, it is very satisfactory that we are never likely to be able to burn our hydrogen. Finally, there is a conceivable source of energy in the annihilation of matter. This would give a supply hundreds of times more potent than the burning of hydrogen into helium, and it would presumably be hundreds of times more devastating, but it is quite unknown whether it can happen at all, even in the hot interiors of stars. It is safe to say that long before this source could be used, some of the milder forms of atomic energy would either have been made available or else would have destroyed the world. Since the prospect of getting atomic power on a really large scale seems not very good, and since water power, which is much the most straightforward source of energy, is going to be inadequate, it is important to consider what other sources might be exploited. Possible sources, in addition to vegetation, are the direct use of sunlight, wind, tides, the interior heat of the earth, and the cold water at the bottom of the sea. Some of these can never provide large powers, and others suffer from being very diffuse in their distribution. But they all deserve consideration. The internal heat of the earth is already being exploited at an installation in Italy where steam is raised by pumping water into hot fissures in the earth. There may be other places where this could be done, though it is hardly likely to be on a large scale. Indeed, in principle, it would be possible to use any volcano as the furnace of a power station, but it is hardly a practical proposition in view of the unreliable habits of volcanoes. The existence of volcanoes is attributed to deep cracks in the ground, which at irregular intervals of time let in water to a depth where it is boiled under pressure so that it explodes out again. This suggests the possibility that man might directly tap this source of heat by, so to speak, making artificial volcanoes which he controlled so that they never reached the surface. Heat does not flow out from the center of the earth very fast and nothing that man might do could affect this rate, since he can only hope to work 
on the outermost few miles of the Earth's shell. Estimated on a world scale, the total energy available is not very great, and the best he could hope for would be to make a few deep borings and raise steam in them. He might hope to keep these borings under control, but even if he was successful in this, there would still be a price to pay for his disturbance of the temperatures in the Earth's shell would almost certainly sooner or later lead to earthquakes. In the light of these considerations, not much can be expected from the Earth's internal heat beyond a few more stations like the one in Italy. An experimental installation has been set up, or at any rate proposed, with the aim of deriving power from the difference in temperature between the surface water of the sea and the water at the bottom. Whatever there is, wherever there is any temperature difference, it is theoretically possible to get power from it. But the amount depends on the magnitude of this difference. In the depths of the oceans, in all latitudes, the water is only a degree or two above freezing. And in the tropics, at the surface, it is perhaps 80 degrees Fahrenheit, so that there is no great margin to work on, and enormous quantities of water would have to be handled to get any reasonable amount of power. The possibility of this power is guaranteed by basic theory, but I do not know what mechanism would actually realize it. It would only be feasible to tap this source in special places, such as tropical oceanic islands, for only in such places would there be a high surface temperature together with proximity to the cold ocean depths. It may be conjectured that this source of energy would be too expensive to be much used. The wind blows on account of unequal heating of different parts of the earth so that its energy is derived from sunlight like that of the water power or the fuels we are now burning up. It could provide considerable amounts of power by means of windmills. The difficulty is that each windmill can only collect a rather small amount of energy, and this at irregular times. And so to make the wind a really useful source of power, some method of storing the energy is quite essential. The most straightforward way of doing this is to have a large number of mills which pump water up into a reservoir whenever the wind blows, and then, when the power is demanded, the water of this reservoir is used hydroelectrically. This tends to limit such a scheme to hilly country, where the differences in level make it possible to construct reservoirs. A more profitable development not yet in sight would be the invention of some really cheap way of storing energy chemically. The ordinary electric storage battery is exactly the kind of thing needed, but it is far too expensive. 
Indeed, if any cheap device should be discovered, whether depending on mechanical or electrical or chemical or any other principles which would store large quantities of energy reasonably efficiently, it would go a very long way toward solving the whole power problem, whether the energy came from the wind or any other source. Assuming such an invention made and applied to the wind, the economic picture of the world would be very different from what it is now, because wealth will tend to be associated with easy power supplies, since it is always likely to be wasteful to transmit power over long distances, it would be the windy regions of the earth that would flourish. These would include the areas of the trade winds, many deserts where a wind springs up every day, and the stormy areas which are found in high northern and southern latitudes. In these regions, there would be set up great rows and ranks of windmills together with the devices for storing the energy. How far schemes of this kind may develop will depend on how successfully the storage problem is solved. And it is probable that if it is solved, the wind will be an important contributor to the world's power problem. The tides are an obvious possible source of power. An interesting point is that they would tap a source of energy quite different from the other possibilities, for their power would be partly derived from the rotational energy of the Earth and partly from the orbital energy of the Moon. The use of tidal energy slightly lengthens both the day and the month. Some use is of course already made of the tides for power. For example, the English fens are pumped out by opening sluice gates at low tide and shutting them at high tide. There are also quite a number of proposals where the terrain is suitable, as on the River Severn, for making barrages which trap the tide at high water and generate hydroelectric power from it. Even under the most favorable circumstances, there is the inconvenience of the fortnightly cycle, for during each fortnight, the tides vary in height by a factor of three between springs and neaps, and high tide is at varying times of day, so that some form of energy storage is quite essential. This applies even when the conditions are most favorable, and the dif difficulty would be far greater if it were attempted to collect power from the tides on the open coasts. The same difficulty would arise there that arises with wind power of having a very large amount of energy spread very diffusely so that a really cheap method of storage is essential if its collection is ever to be at all practical. It must also be remembered that the tides in the open ocean are only a foot or two in height, and that there are not very many parts of the earth where the coastal configuration enhances them to a magnitude 
that would be easy to exploit for power. Britain is one of these, and if once the storage problem could be solved, here and in other favored areas, the tides could make a useful contribution to the power problem. The direct use of sunlight would be one of the most effective ways of getting power. Already in suitable climates, it is used for heating water by absorbing heat on the blackened surfaces of water tanks. But this is trivial compared to what might be hoped for. One obvious way of getting power would be to use the heat of the sun to raise steam by concentrating it on the surface of a boiler by means of a burning glass or more probably a reflector. It would be a formidable problem for the total amount of heat falling on a square yard facing the sun is about enough in each minute of time to evaporate only a quarter of an ounce of boiling water into steam so that to make an engine of reasonable size a very large area would be needed. On the other hand the efficiency of the engine would be very good for the temperature of sunlight is 6,000 degrees centigrade this is the actual temperature of the sun's surface and it signifies that the sun's rays could ideally raise a boiler to this temperature. It is this temperature that matters for efficiency and it means that the temperature of the boiler need only be limited by strength of the materials it can be made of. The result might be to convert perhaps a fifteenth of the heat into power. I'm sorry. The result might be to convert perhaps a fifth of the heat into power. On this basis, something like a third of a horsepower could ideally be obtained from a square yard. This is not ground area, but area measured facing directly towards the sun which of course will demand a bigger area on the ground. The possibility of getting the solar energy directly in this way is impressive, but the technical difficulties would be very formidable indeed. Apart from all the ordinary difficulties of big engineering projects, the chief would probably be that it would be necessary to concentrate the heat from a good many square yards onto a rather small focus, for it is only so that the heat losses could be avoided, which would destroy the engine's efficiency, and this must somehow be done in spite of the sun's motion all through the day and its different height at different times of the year. Deserts where the sun always shine and there is no rainy season, would be the best places for solar engines. The power would only come in daytime, and this would be less inconvenient than tidal power, but still it would be nearly essential to be able to store it. Altogether, it would be a tremendous undertaking. There may, of course, be discovered other ways of getting energy 
out of sunlight. For example, there may be chemical processes which would imitate those of the vegetables, but more efficiently. There is also the possibility of getting the energy photoelectrically, that is to say, by causing the light directly to make electric currents. At present, this is a hopelessly inefficient method, but it cannot be excluded that some new idea might make it feasible, and then it would probably be the best of all. Of all the possible ways of collecting energy, the direct use of sunlight is the most promising. Finally, it may well prove that the various devices discussed above are all of them too complicated and troublesome to be really practical, and that it is best to exploit the method used by nature, the vegetable. There would have to be vast plantations producing potatoes or some such plants in enormous quantities, which could be made into industrial alcohol for power. Or perhaps it might be possible to exploit the ocean by collecting the microscopic vegetables floating on its surface. The quantity of this plankton must be vast, but it is spread very thin and the collection would be very difficult would be a very difficult problem. However that may be, and wherever the vegetables grew, there would be all the trouble over bad seasons and pestilences that we know too well already. And it is possible that enormous greenhouses in which the plants grew under accurately controlled conditions might pay better. But whatever was found best would have to be on a vast scale because of the comparative inefficiency of the vegetable in converting sunlight into energy. I think this completes the list of all reasonably possible sources of energy, and apart from ordinary water power, the results are not encouraging. This is hardly surprising, for it certainly involves a great deal more work to live on income than on the accumulated capital of geological ages. Our present civilization is largely based on the provision of mechanical power, and if it is to continue, it would seem likely that a good fraction of humanity will have to be engaged in collecting energy, either by minding vast numbers of machines or by tending vegetables in plantations. It will have to be a far greater number than those now engaged in mines and power stations. It is rather likely that the natural inefficiency of mankind will prevent him from realizing to the full the possibilities of winning energy out of nature, and that he will often find that he has to get on with much less of it. Turning now to other questions of the future conditions of the world, it is of course likely that many technical inventions both of utility and of luxury will be made, which may profoundly alter the detail of human life. As I have already explained in an earlier chapter, however, and as will be developed more fully later, 
These are only to be regarded as details superposed on the immensely important questions of population and of human nature. It is therefore not worth entering on wild speculations about them, for such speculations would surely be as wrong as the speculations of a natural philosopher of two centuries ago would have been about our present conditions. It may be noticed, however, that the biological sciences, which in the 19th century rather lagged behind the physical, are beginning to show promise of quite astonishing new advances. The proper consideration of these biological advances must, for the most part, be deferred to later chapters, but I may list some of them here without discussion. There is first the possibility of new sources of food, for example, if grass or wood could be rendered edible, it is safe to say that there would be immediately a great increase in the population of the world. Then there is the probability that medical science will continue still further, the great triumphs it can already claim in the conquest of disease. It is also not impossible that medical science might succeed in material, materially lengthening life without senility, though in a world of overcrowded population it is not very clear what would be gained. Looking a little deeper, there is the possibility of substantially altering the intellectual and moral nature of individuals by some sort of hormonal injections. Already great effects have been produced on animals. Finally, as the most curious speculation of all, it is not quite impossible that it may one day be feasible to select in advance the sex of each child that is to be born. Whether the decision is made by the parents or by their rulers, this suggests the probability of a great unbalance in the populations of the world. Before discussing these matters, however, it is necessary to look deeper into man's nature, and this will be the subject of the next three chapters. End of chapter 4